thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I'm grateful to see uh, quite a few visitors here this morning. Uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, let me begin by saying he is risen. All right. Some of you didn't know that, and that's okay, because maybe you didn't grow up in churches doing that. Let's do it again. He is risen. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Yes, I saw some of your eyes just open. Yes, book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Uh, as you all know, today is Resurrection Sunday. Today is the day that nearly two millennia ago, our Lord was raised from the dead. And while we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord every week, it's become customary in churches on this week particularly to meditate especially on his resurrection and the glory and blessing that comes from it. And that's what we're going to do this morning, and we're going to do so from Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Now this text, uh, by way of introduction, let me say this. This text has stuck out to me in recent times as I've read the book of Revelation. Um, I, I think, and I think it leaps off the page at me because it is such a kingly and majestic statement from our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, in, in our text, Jesus speaks a word of comfort and encouragement to the Apostle John. Uh, you see, John is about to receive the vision, the prophecy that is the book of Revelation. And this prophecy came at a time when the people of God were facing persecution on many fronts. And the persecution was about to grow worse for a time. And the whole book of Revelation is meant to encourage the people of God with one big message. Here it is. Jesus wins. Right? Jesus is God, Jesus is King, and Jesus wins. And those who belong to Jesus will win in the end as well through him. And this is only possible if the Jesus who was crucified on Good Friday is nevertheless alive now. So after first revealing himself to John in the opening part of chapter 1, in our text today, Jesus then speaks to John, and he speaks a word of encouragement and comfort to the apostle, who himself was currently in exile on the island of Patmos because of his faithfulness to Christ. And the word that, John, or rather, that Jesus spoke to John is actually a word that Jesus speaks to each one of us who belong to him by faith. And the words Jesus speaks are a blessing. What Jesus says to John is a word about himself. It's a word about who he is and what he has done and the ramifications of it all. It's a word that tells us that we have nothing to fear because our Lord Jesus Christ is the sovereign God who died for sinners, was raised, is alive forevermore, and has all authority over death and the grave. The words that Jesus spoke to John in our text are meant to put joy into our hearts and steal into our spines so that we may endure whatever the world and the devil may try to do to us. Our Lord Jesus is alive, and so we are not to be afraid. Or you could put it this way, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus takes away our fears. Why? Because the risen Lord himself takes away our fears. So those are the things we're going to be meditating upon this morning and may God bless us in it. So with that said, will you please stand for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. 
I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the opportunity to come and be blessed by you each week as we assemble together on the day that our Lord was raised from the dead. We ask now that you would make our meditation upon your word bear fruit in our hearts. Please instruct us by your spirit working alongside of your word and cause us to behold our Lord Jesus, the lamb who was slain for sinners and the reigning king who was raised on the third day. Give us a sight of him that takes away all our fears. Give us a sight of him that causes us to bow down in reverent joy and gladness. Have mercy on us and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Our text begins with John writing in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John says that when he saw Christ, he threw himself down at Jesus' feet. John, John nearly passes out, and he falls to the ground in terror at what he saw. But what did John see? Right, like I've dropped us in right in the middle of a narrative. So what did John see? Well, verses 12 through 16 tell us, and I'm going to read them to you now. John heard a voice speaking to him, and then we read this starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John hears a voice and then he turns to see who is speaking. And he sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. He says, I saw one like a son of man. Jesus, the Son of Man, standing in the midst of the golden lampstands that represent the seven churches. This is Christ. Let me, let me, and let me go through, what, what, is, what, is, what is this symbolic language meant to convey that John saw? John sees the Son of Man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. This is emblematic of the kingly authority of the Lord. And his hair is white like snow. He has all wisdom and all knowledge in himself. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees all. He sees into the hearts of men, and nothing is hidden from him. His feet were like burnished bronze. That is, he has all strength. He stands strong. His dominion is eternal and sturdy. His voice is like the roar of many waters. That is, he speaks with authority. And a sharp sword comes from his mouth. He, he speaks, and when he speaks, he strikes down men either by converting them with the grace of the gospel or by striking them down into damnation. And his face was shining like the sun in full strength. That is, he is the God who dwells in inapproachable light. This is what John has just seen. And again, no doubt, this is symbolic language, but don't miss the point. This is Jesus. John has just seen the risen Lord in his full glory and majesty as the risen and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. The veil has been removed. Jesus was not seen like this during his earthly ministry, right? The veil of his human nature kept men from seeing his divine majesty. 
It was only on the Mount of Transfiguration that something like this was ever seen. You'll remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, John was there and Jesus' clothes became dazzlingly bright and his face shone like the sun. But now this veil is removed forever. Jesus has been raised to glory. So again, John has be, beheld the Son of God in all of his splendor. Of course he's terrified. I fell down at his feet as though dead. That's what you do when you encounter God. That's also just a quick aside. That's how you know these people that say, I had a vision of God and I just felt so happy. You didn't see God then. <laughs> Throughout the Bible, woe is me for I am undone. That is the response whenever you get a vision of God. When sinful men come into contact with the holy God, there is a proper fear that grips them. And so in holy fear, sheer human terror, and respect for the Lord Jesus, John collapses at his feet. But that's not all that John says. We're very grateful for that. John goes on to say, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. A word of comfort comes to John in the midst of his fear. A familiar hand, a hand that John had felt many times before. The nail-scarred hand of the Lord Jesus Christ touches him. Then a familiar voice, the voice of his Lord and his friend, speaks a familiar phrase to an old disciple, fear not. John had heard this many times, fear not. This was meant to be an encouragement to John. The touch and words of the Lord Jesus were meant to give him strength and to take away his fears. Jesus has not come to John in judgment. John is loved by the Lord. Rather, Jesus has come to give a message to John, and so Jesus says, fear not. But real quick, seeing that Jesus, if you, if you look at the passage, verses 17 and 18 closely, Jesus connects the command to fear not with everything that comes after it. Right? Fear not doesn't stand on its own. It's connected with everything Jesus is getting ready to say. So in light of that, I don't think that this is only meant to be a comfort to John in that moment. What, it's bigger than that. What Jesus is about to say to John is meant to be a comfort and encouragement to him that takes away his fears about everything in life and in death and in the life to come. Again, remember the context of the book of Revelation. John is imprisoned for Christ on the island of Patmos. Persecution is happening to the church, and it will soon be getting worse. And so the words fear not are, are not only for John. They're for all of Christ's sheep who hear this book. They're for all of the churches. It's for us. So again, this, this doesn't just mean, this, this be not afraid. It, it doesn't just mean, don't be afraid, John. It's me, Jesus, right? It, it's, it's more than that. It's weightier than that. It has significance for us. And we know that because of why Jesus tells him to not be afraid. So then the question is, well, why shouldn't John be afraid? And by extension, why shouldn't we be afraid either? In our text, Jesus gives us four reasons that we shouldn't be afraid. And they're all centered around who he is and what he has done for us and what authority that he has. First, Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. He's God. He's God. That's what he's saying. I am the first and the last and the living one. The risen Lord Jesus is Almighty God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He has the fullness of the divine nature in himself. He is God. How do we know that? Well, the first and the last is a title that God gives to himself in the book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah 44, 6 reads, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, that's God's name, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 41, 4, Isaiah 44, 6, and Isaiah 48, 12 are all places where God declares he is the first and the last. God declares in those texts there is no other God. There is no one like him, that he is the end all be all of everything. And here our Lord Jesus tells us he is that same God. Before there was anything, he was. He is the first. Rather, I should say, sorry, before there was anything, he is. As God says, his name is I am. Before there was anything, there was Christ. He is the first and he has no end. He is the last. All things are from him. He is the first. And all things are to him. He is the last. He is the eternal one who has no beginning and no end. He is the Lord of all history. As we're going to sing after the sermon's over, he is the potentate of time. He is the sovereign ruler of all history. He directs it and he guides it. He rules over all of it. Nothing happens apart from the will of the first and the last because he is the great, capital G, governor of time. This is Christ. And he reigns and he rules over all of history for his glory because he's God. And also for the good of those whom he has set his love upon because he's a redeemer. He rules over all. All of the false gods and powers of this world will fall on their face before the first and the last. Please hear me. He's the first and the last. No one can escape him. Where are you going to go that he is not? Where will you go that he does not exist? He is the first and the last. No one can overpower him. He is the almighty God. No one can outlast or outlive him. When God calls himself the first and the last in the book of Isaiah, he does so as a declaration that when all the false gods of the world perish, and they will, that he will remain. When all of the humanistic wisdom of the world perishes, he will remain. When the world is dissolved like snow, as the hymn says, the first and the last will remain. He is God, and no one will ever ungod him. Let all the powers of the world try to dethrone him. Let all the power of hell try to overthrow him. It matters not. Because he is the first and the last. He's running the show. The universe and everything in it belongs to the risen Lord. And he is the living one, he says. He is the living one. Again, he is God. All over the Old Testament, God is called the living God. All over the place. He is the one who has life in and of himself. God is the one who, in the words of John Calvin, is the fountainhead and source of all life. All life has life because it gets life from the living one. He is life itself, and this means then that he is the undying God. He lives, and nothing can take his life from him as God. He is forever God. As he said already, he is the first and the last and the living one. He is, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16, he is the God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Fear not, Christian. Fear not. This Jesus is your God. 
the risen and reigning Lord of glory is your God. The sovereign king of the ages is your God. The one who controls all of human history is your God. The one who by his hand of providence guides all things to his appointed ends is your God. Your God is the one who holds your future in his nail-scarred hands. The God who never ceases to be God is your God and you belong to him. You belong to him. Do not be afraid of the world or the future or even the devil himself. Because your God is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the first and the last and the living one. Fear not. He reigns. Fear not. Then Jesus said, verse 18, I died. Literally, uh, the Greek is, I became dead. I became dead. And, and here, here's the great mystery. Here's the great mystery. Why would the first and the last, why would the living one die? Why would the living one die? Hear me. Reason with me. Surely he did not die because it's natural for him to die. He's the living one. Surely he did not die because death overpowered him. He's the first and the last. Surely he did not die because he's a sinner. He's God. And in the preceding verses, verses 12 through 16, have shown us emblems of his divinity. So then, why did he die? For sinners. There's your answer. For sinners. The living one took on human flesh and was born of a virgin in order that he might die. The divine nature cannot die. So he takes a human nature to himself that he might die. He became man without ever ceasing to be God. The two natures joined together but not mixed in any way whatsoever. He joined himself to a human nature without ceasing to be God so that he could die. So that he could die in the room instead of guilty sinners. The same sinners who had sinned against him. A man must atone for the sins of men. A human must die for the sins of humans. And so the Son of God became a man, as we confessed, for us and for our salvation. Again, the divine nature cannot die, and so he unites himself to a human nature. Again, this is the mind-blowing thing. For the express purpose of living and dying for sinners. And note this, he did this willingly. Is there any other way that the living one can die unless it's voluntarily? Who's going to overpower him? Who's going to snatch his life from him? He's the living one. It was voluntary. He was not forced to this. This was the plan of God. And being God as the second person of the Trinity, he has the will of God. It was his own will that he would come and die for sinners. His hand was not forced. He did this voluntarily. And note this as well. He did this once. He did this once. I became dead. What does that mean? It's a short thing for him. It happened once. This was not normal for me to become dead. I'm the living one. So I did it for a short time, never to be repeated. He laid down his life for sinners. That's why he died. He, the perfect man, even the God-man, became sin for us and died for us. As Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
As Paul tells us, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. God credited him with our sins at the cross. And then God punished him as if he, the perfect one, the just one, had committed our sins. And he suffered as if he had blasphemed, as if he had fornicated, as if he had questioned the existence of God, as if he had bitterness and hatred in his heart, as if he had denied God's authority, as if he had been greedy, as if he had been a gossip, as if he had been named the sin. He was punished as if he did it himself, though he himself were innocent. He suffered as if he was the lawbreaker. And God punished the Lord Jesus in our place at the cross for our sins. And as the hymn says, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. The Lord Jesus made a full and free atonement for the sins of all who would ever believe on him. And having suffered the full weight of the white-hot wrath and justice of God on our behalf, he cries out, it is finished. The transaction was over. Our sin paid for. It is finished. God's wrath that stood against all who would ever believe on Christ has been appeased. An atonement has been accomplished. The payment was in full, and there is now no more wrath from God for any who will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He cried out on the cross, it is finished, and then he died. He died for sinners. The living one died for sinners. What love. What love. There is no God like this. Search the world and all of its heathen religion. There is no God like this. All other gods say, make atonement for yourself. This God says, I made atonement for you. All the gods of the world are worthless idols who say, work your way to me. He says, no, I have accomplished the work on your behalf. Search the world if you will. There is no one like him. What love is this? As John wrote earlier in Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, he loves you. And that's why he died. He died to free you from your sins and the penalty of damnation that you deserve for them. And he did it because he loves you. The first and the last and the living one died because he wanted to save you. And so he did. Fear not, Christian. Your sins have been dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. He died. And he died for you. And now by faith in him, you stand before God spotless and clean having been cleansed from your sins and transgressions through the precious blood of the Lamb of God. You need not fear. God is no longer your enemy. You have been made into his sons through faith in Christ. In him you stand, and in him you have the forgiveness of sins because he died so that you would live. He died. But that wasn't the end. Not by a long shot. Not even close. No, human history is not done yet. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He says, behold, why? He's saying, pay attention to this. That's what behold means. Literally, behold this, look at this. Pay attention, be in awe and wonder and astonishment at what I'm getting ready to say. Behold, 
I am alive forevermore. Though he really and truly died, he is nevertheless alive now. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This is what we celebrate today and every Lord's Day. The Lord Jesus Christ is alive. He died in shame, but he was raised in glory. To paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, he was crowned with a crown of thorns and then he died. But he was raised with the triple crown of heaven, earth, and hell. He is Lord of all. He is alive. Death could not hold the living one. Death could not overpower and keep the first and the last in the grave. On the third day, early in the morning, Jesus burst forth from the grave in glory. He has been raised from the dead, just as he had said, as he had prophesied at least three times throughout his ministry. I'll be crucified. I'll be died. I will die. I will be buried. I will be raised. He has been raised from the dead as the scriptures for centuries, had foretold that he would. Psalm 16.10, King David wrote a prophecy concerning the Messiah. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The Messiah would die. He would descend to the realm of the dead, Sheol. But God would not allow him to remain there. You won't allow me to see corruption. I will die, but I will not stay dead. Psalm 118, verse 22 that we read. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does that mean? God's stone would be rejected and die, but later would become the cornerstone. How does a rejected one later become the cornerstone? He rises from the dead. Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11 say, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the Messiah. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What is that? It was the will of God to crush Christ. He would make an offering for guilt with his life, but later he would see his offspring and he would prolong his days and he will see what he has done, what he has accomplished and will be satisfied. How? Because he will live. He will live. He must be raised from the dead. The scriptures had foretold that the Messiah would die and that he would rise. God had promised that our Lord would not stay dead. God would not permit it. Consider that for a moment. God would not permit it. Why? Read Psalm 2. Jesus is God's appointed king. I have chosen my king and I've placed him in Zion. Jesus is God's appointed king over the cosmos and so he must reign. Therefore, he cannot stay dead. More than that, he did not die because of any imperfection in himself. So death had no legitimate claim upon him. What am I getting at? Paul tells us in Romans, the book of Romans, that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus had no sin. And so those wages were not rightfully due to him. So then even though he died, he must rise from the dead. Death could not hold him. And God would not permit him to stay in the grave. Our Lord conquered death. Behold, I am alive. I am alive forevermore, he says. This is one of my favorite things that I get to proclaim. And I really mean this. If you ever consider the sufferings of our Lord and it, and it brings you uh, to tears, as it should if you actually think on what he suffered and that it was for you and that he was innocent and didn't deserve any of it, know this, he will never die again. Never. 
He is alive forevermore. He tasted death once, and he will never taste it again. He suffered, and he will never suffer again. He was beaten, and he will never be beaten again. He, he spilled his blood, and it will never be spilled again. He was mocked to his face, but no one will ever again mock him to his face. He is alive forevermore. He is the risen and glorified King of glory. From his resurrection on, he will never again undergo anything but eternal blessedness and goodness and glory. He suffered and died once, but behold, he is alive forevermore. He is the risen and eternal king. And there's glory for him in his resurrection. He's vindicated, is he not? Everything he ever said about himself is proven true. Romans 1 says he was publicly declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. His innocence from sin has been demonstrated, as Paul tells us in Romans 6. Death had no dominion over him. Why? Because he's sinless. So he must rise. His, his kingship has been shouted from the rooftops. Psalm 2. His resurrection is his entrance to glory. There's glory for him. And, and while there certainly is glory for him in his resurrection, consider this. There's great blessing for you. This has ramifications for you. His resurrection is proof of your justification, Christian. Romans 4.25 tells us that Jesus was raised for our justification. What does that mean? His resurrection is proof that you are indeed counted righteous in God's sight through him. His resurrection is the proof that your sins were really atoned for by Christ at the cross. I read a theologian put it this way once, and I appreciated this. At the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And in his resurrection, God said, yes, it is. He was raised for your justification. Since he is righteous in God's sight and therefore was raised from the dead, and we by faith have been united to him, we are counted as righteous in God's sight. His resurrection means eternal life for us. God's declaration of righteous over Christ is God's declaration of righteous over us, and the resurrection is our proof. And since he is alive forevermore, what do we know? We will forevermore be counted as righteous in him. As long as he lives, I'm justified, and he lives forever. Fear not, Christian. Your Lord is alive, and he is reigning, and he will never die again. He is mighty and powerful. He is the living Lord. And because he lives, you should know that you are saved. It's in stone. It's a done deal. There's nothing left to say. He lives forever, and we are forever right with God. Lastly, our Lord says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This one is the one that a lot of people find strange. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is symbolic language our Lord's using at this point. To have keys means to have authority and power over something. It is to have complete control over the affairs of the realm of which you own the keys. Right? The owner of the house has the keys to the house. The owner of the car has keys to the car. Right? You get the idea there? That's your redneck illustration for that. What you own, you get the keys to. That's what's happening here. Jesus is saying that he has full and total authority over death and Hades. As Revelation 3.7 says, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. 
who shuts and no one opens. Again, Jesus is saying that he is sovereign over death and Hades. He can open them and no one can shut them. And he can shut them and no one can open them. He has the key of death. That is, he has authority over death itself. He conquered it, after all. And by conquering death, he became its master. Jesus Christ rules over death as he wills. And he has the key of Hades. Now, if you read the King James Bible, uh, the KJV translates this word hell. Right? He has the keys of death and hell. But that's a bad translation. Hear me out. I'm not just hating on the King James. Hear me out. The Greek word Gehenna is what we translate hell. That's the place of torment that Jesus speaks about, Gehenna. But the word here is literally Hades. So our Bible is not even a translation at this point. It's a transliteration. The words here is Hades. And Hades was a Greek word that refers to the general realm of the dead. It's the afterlife in general. It's the grave, so to speak. It's where all dead souls go. Everyone goes to Hades when they die. I know that in common English, like you say Hades instead of hell. So like if someone goes to Hades, that's not good. That's not what's being used here. Hades, heaven and hell are both in the realm of Hades. It's the afterlife. Jesus says he has the key to that realm. He's sovereign over that entire realm. Jesus has conquered both death and Hades. And he's done this by, or rather he has done so by his resurrection from the dead. He has broken the power of death. He has defied death by bursting its bonds that held him until the third day. And he has broken open the gates of Hades, the realm of the dead. How? By coming back to life. In his resurrection, he bursts open the grave and bursts forth from the realm of the dead and re-entered the land of the living. You could say this, he crashed open the gates of Hades and death. And in doing so, he has rendered them weak and powerless things. And now they have no hold on him. Rather, he controls them. This is not original to me, but I find this helpful. He knows the way to death and the way to the realm of the dead. And he knows the way out. Why? Because he came out. He owns them now. Consider this, the glory of the, resurrection, of the resurrected Christ. Hear this, our king conquered the things that have overpowered and held all men since Adam fell into sin. You tell me one person that didn't have to die. All men dies. Hebrews 9 tells us all men die. You show me one who entered the realm of the dead, even the ones who came out that didn't have to go back someday. You show me one person who came back from the land of the dead and never had to return again. Even the people that you read about in the Bible who were raised from the dead, right? So that's great, they were raised from the dead. They died again, right? It's one of the funny illustrations you always hear about Lazarus, right? Like he's dead and gets to go to heaven and then he has to die again. Like that's tough. Like he's already been through that once. But not Jesus. All men who have died enter into Hades and the gates swing shut on their souls. But not Jesus. He crashed the gates. He is alive forevermore. He has overpowered death and Hades. And so he has the key of death. He controls it. Uh, Hear me. Death is the servant of Jesus now. What do I mean? He determines 
when death comes to each man? And how? And for what purpose? You want to talk about sovereignty. Not one single person can die apart from the ordination and will of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know often we hear phrases like so-and-so died before their time. No. No, they did not. Everyone dies exactly when Jesus says so. Why? Because he has the key of death. To paraphrase Charles Spurgeon again, he said, 1,000 angels could not hurl you to the grave apart from the ordination of Christ. Our lives are in the hands of the one who holds the key of death. But not only that, but consider this, this Resurrection Sunday. Christ has actually transformed death for the Christian. Don't misunderstand me. Death is still our enemy, right? 1 Corinthians 15 is quite clear about that. Death is still our enemy. But by the victory of Christ over death and Hades, death has been converted into a vehicle that transports us to glory. Christian, is it not true for you? You may be afraid, as R.C. Sproul said, I'm afraid of dying because that might hurt, but I'm not afraid of death anymore. Why is that? Because Christ overcame it? Because death now actually escorts you to his side? Right? So though we may fear the act of dying because some, some, some deaths are indeed painful, death now that once had us in its grip is now used by Christ to bring us to himself. Truly, he has conquered death. Fear not, Christian. Do not be afraid of death. Your Lord is Lord over it. The one who loves you and died for you determines the day and manner in which you will leave this world. And he does so as seems best to him for his glory and your good. Furthermore, we need not be afraid of what mere men can do to us. Why? Because you will not perish from this earth one millisecond before Christ says so. And even when we die, we are escorted to his side. Fear not. And again, he has conquered Hades. That realm of the dead, he controls it now. As we confess in the Apostles' Creed, we use an old translation of it. He descended into hell, he descended into Hades. That's what we're confessing. He descended to the realm and then broke out. As the author of Hebrews said, by the power of his indestructible righteous life, he overcame Hades and was raised to a glorified body and a glorified life. And now, hear me, what's the, what's the implications of that? What are the ramifications of this? Now, as the sovereign over that realm, he determines who goes where when they die. There are two places within the realm. He opens the gates to eternal happiness to those who know him by faith. And likewise, he opens the gates to hell for those who do not know him and do not obey his gospel. Jesus is just as much king of that realm as he is king of the earth. And he passes judgment on souls from which there is no appeal. Let me say that again. As the key holder, he passes judgment on souls from which there is no appeal. He is the final arbiter. But even more, as I've said already a few times, I'm laboring the point because it's Resurrection Sunday. Get it into your head. He knows the way out of the grave. He knows the way out of Hades. What does that mean? What are the, what are the ramifications of that? He can bring men back from death. And, and listen, he could, he could do that prior, right? Prior to his resurrection. Um, but it was temporary. But now he can bring men back from the realm of the dead permanent, permanently. 
He can free men from the grave. He himself paved the way out. He can release the dead from there to eternal resurrection life. And this is exactly what he promises to those who trust in him. Resurrection life. Brothers and sisters, we will be raised from the dead on the last day because Jesus has the key to Hades. We will live eternally with him because he reigns. Fear not, Christian. Don't be afraid of the life to come. Don't be afraid of the world to come. Your Lord has determined that when you die, your soul will go to heaven to await the resurrection of your body. He is sovereign to say, come be with me, and nobody can contradict him. And even more glorious than that, your Lord has the power and has made the promise that he will one day release your body from the grave, and you will live forever with him, body and soul, in a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because he holds the keys to it all. And one day, on that great day, he will do away with both death and Hades. Revelation 20, verses 13 and 14. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. What's John telling us here? When Jesus returns, death and Hades will be done away with. There'll be a new world, a new heaven, and a new earth, and there will be no more death there. And as a result, there will be no more realm of the dead. It will all be gone. All things will be made new by the one who holds the keys. Brothers and sisters, many in this world claim to have control over life and death, and they are liars. Nobody but our king has such authority. He is the true king. He is the key holder because he has conquered. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, fear not. Fear not. In this text, our Lord Jesus touches you with his right hand and he speaks to you. Fear not. Because the first and the last controls all of history and is guiding it to the great day. Fear not. Because the living one died for your sins. Fear not, because the one who died is alive forevermore. Fear not, because your Lord has the keys of death and of Hades. For those who know Christ by faith, this is glorious. This is glorious. Death and Hades will not have the final word. Our Lord who loved us and is sovereign has conquered. He will not allow our souls to be lost and he will not allow our bodies to remain in the grave. He is risen and we are safe. The worst the world can do to us is to take us to Christ. And the world can't even do that apart from his command. Fear not, Christian. Your Lord lives. But let me ask you this. As I look around, we see, I see visitors. I don't know you all. I don't. I know some of you by acquaintance, but I don't know you all well. Let me ask you this. Do you know this Jesus? Not not. not not 21st century American Jesus that is, is a wuss who's just begging people, would you just please come here? I'm not really a king. Like he's some hippie from California who has like no majesty to him. Not that one. Not him. He's an idol. Do you know this one? Do you know this Jesus? 
the king who loves sinners and died for them because they will go to hell if he does not do so. Do you know the king who has the key to hell, who opens it and sends the unbelieving there? Do you know the king who promises eternal life to those who don't deserve it, if they will only believe in him? Do you know the king who is the sovereign of the whole world? Do you know this Jesus? And I'm not asking, do you know about him? I'm saying, do you personally know him through faith? Have you turned from your sin, acknowledged your sinfulness to God, and said, I need salvation through this one king, Jesus, and he's the only one that can give it to me? Do you know him? Because I declare to you today, the promises are for you. If only you will trust in the risen Lord. The glories of this text are for you. Whoever will believe. He removes the sting of death. He removes the penalty for sin. He promises everlasting life to those who come to him in faith. The promises are for whoever will believe. They are for you. May God grant to each one of us faith in this Christ who lives forevermore. He is risen and we are safe in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this text, this, these, these words from our risen Lord that, that encourage our souls, that remind us that he's died for us, that reminds us of his kingship, that reminds us that he is the sovereign, that reminds us that we are safe in him. God, I pray that each one of us would leave here encouraged in him and that those who do not trust in him would either leave here converted or leave here terrified of this king who holds the keys to death and Hades. Have mercy, God. Convert sinners and strengthen your saints, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.